Turn the word with me to Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. This morning, we're beginning our look at that most famous and beloved of all stories in the book of Joshua, and perhaps even in the whole Old Testament, the conquest of the city of Jericho under Joshua's leadership. This morning, we're only going to make our beginning as we go into the fight over Jericho. We will return here next to this new chapter in Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, blow up everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. The word of our God stands forever. May he bless its proclamation and it's hearing. Well, last Lord's Day, we gathered together and we considered the scene that immediately precedes chapter 6, the ending of chapter 5. And we recall that something amazing happened. Joshua was being prepared for the battle. He was being prepared by the Lord for the coming invasion. And we read that the commander of the army of the Lord, this strange man bearing a sword in his hand, appeared to Joshua very suddenly without any warning. When this man appeared, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshipped the man with the sword. And we identified that man as none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord makes an Old Testament appearance at that strategic moment in Joshua's life, in that moment so critical to the life of Israel, and the Lord spoke to Joshua, the Lord encouraged Joshua, the Lord prepared him for battle. And the point we made, the critical point we made, is that the worship of our Lord God and His beloved Son must precede and set the stage for all that is done in His service. Worship is fundamental and primary. Then and only then comes obedience and service and the engagement in the good fight of faith. Worship, the worship of our triune God, drives everything, and the heart of worship is obedience. There is no true worship without obedience. 
And so having worshipped the Lord himself who, who appeared to Joshua there on the banks of the Jordan River, Joshua is now ready to do what the Lord commanded. His heart is now properly focused. His perspective has been corrected. He sees the battle not through human eyes, but he sees the battle that's coming through the eyes of the commander of the Lord of hosts. And so the Lord then commands Joshua. And the last words of chapter 5 are so instructive, and Joshua did so. The Lord said, Joshua, fight. Joshua, worship. Joshua, take off your shoes. And Joshua, obeys. He submits to the great warrior. And now Joshua, having worshipped and having submitted, having met the Lord, having seen the one in charge, having determined whose battle it really is, he is now ready to lead the people to do the will of the Lord. He's ready to lead the people to follow God's plan. He's ready to lead the people to fight the good fight of faith, God's holy war, God's objective. He is ready now to be loyal, to be faithful, all for the glory of the Lord. And then we come to verse 1. And we're reintroduced to the name of that city we know so well, that infamous, notorious city, the city of the moon, Jericho. The first objective in the holy war as they enter the land of Canaan, as they now physically take possession of their inheritance that the Lord had given them, their, their first objective is Jericho. And Jericho, the city of the moon, is known by all for its massive walls, the walled city of Jericho. If you looked at a map, you would find Jericho down by the Dead Sea, some 16 miles east-northeast of the city of Jerusalem. The Jericho of Joshua's day was a city about one-quarter mile in length and about 700 feet wide. It was surrounded by two walls. There was an outer wall, six feet thick. Fifteen feet in from the outer wall was an inner wall, twelve feet thick, and thirty feet high. The walled city of Jericho, by any measure, standard or ancient, a very impressive sight to see this walled city, this apparently impenetrable, impenetrable, undefeatable city called Jericho. And that's where the Lord is sending Joshua. And we learn in verse 1 that all the city gates are now closed, closed on the inside and the outside. The gates and entrances have been shut very tight. Why? Because the people of the city of Jericho have heard about the people on the other side of those walls. They've heard about the Israelites. And so all the passages of ingress and egress are closed. The very heavy gates of the city now shut and barred and all the inhabitants now inside behind its massive walls, seemingly safe, yet desperately in fear of what God might do, what God has done already. Though all of the citizens of Jericho are behind the walls, they know who was on the outside. They know about the God of Israel. Do you remember chapter 2? 
Do you remember as the spies were sent in, the two spies were sent in by Joshua, they went in secretly to the city of Jericho, they went to spy out their defenses, they went to see if there were any God worshipers there, and they found this woman already prepared by the Spirit to become a worshiper of Yahweh named Rahab. And do you remember what Rahab said as she related to the spies the talk going on in the town? She said this, we've heard... We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We've heard what you did, what the Israelites did to the two Amorite kings that you destroyed. And when we heard about you coming out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea on dry land, when we heard about you winning battles before you got here, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in them because your God, the God who is in the heavens, The God who reigns on earth, he is the true God. Oh, the citizens of Jericho were hidden behind the walls, but they knew who God was. They knew who the real Lord was. You see, one of the best advertisements for the Lord's kingdom is simply his work among his people. Israel needed no press agent. They needed no advance man. They needed no announcement. They needed no banner. They needed to buy no time on the local station. They simply obeyed the Lord, and the Lord, through his work for them and by his work in them, was making all the noise that need to be made about the kingdom of God. They knew that Yahweh was real. The inhabitants of Jericho have placed their faith in their walls. They are afraid. The true Lord, the true God is coming to town. And they hide behind their walls, but they place their faith in their walls even as they are afraid of the one true God. They they, they have these walls that they so trust in. And as we stop and reflect upon that, that interesting observation made in chapter 6, verse 1, there are some lessons to be learned for sure. And the first thing we want to observe as we consider verse number 1 is that the shutting of the city gates and the closing down of all entrances and exits signals Jericho's official rejection of the mercy and grace of God. They are now officially a closed city. They will not receive the message of this God who has come to their city. The spies had been there looking for ways that Jericho might be defeated and even looking for those who might be ready to believe. And these spies find one woman, Rahab, and her family. Time had gone by. For 400 years, the Lord had been merciful to those Canaanites living in that land. He had spared them his wrath for 400 years. And even between the time when Rahab heard and Rahab delivered the spies safely back out of that city, and when Israel now came knocking on their doors, during that span of time, there was grace. There was an opportunity for the citizens of Jericho to repent. They, they, they could have repented, but they didn't. They shut their doors. They stood behind their walls, and now they've officially said no. They refuse, in a most definitive way, they refuse to hear the message of Israel now. Grace has been spurned. 
mercy has been rebuffed, and the time of repentance is over. No longer will grace be extended to Jericho. The clock on Jericho that's been ticking for over four centuries has reached midnight. Judgment day has arrived, and now there's no more mercy. There is no more time left to receive what God has offered. And what a lesson, what a lesson there is. We often read the story of Jericho. We know what's going to happen. We know what happens later in the book of Joshua. We know how the Lord brings destruction. And we often simply assume that God is being harsh. The critics say God is being harsh. God is not showing mercy. But the the opposite is really the truth. God God has given abundant mercy to these people. They indeed will be utterly destroyed, but not because God has been merciless. No, indeed, God has been long-suffering. Mercy extended generation after generation, time after time, opportunity after opportunity, but they would not. And now the unthinkable consequences will be played out upon them. There is no more time to make things right with God. If you and if I steadfastly refuse mercy... There will come a day when judgment will fall, and that day of reckoning has arrived in Jericho, and now there's no way to stop it. And the lessons are these. It is a grave danger to procrastinate with the grace of God. When God's grace and mercy are offered, The waiting game is a dangerous game to play. Sinners can never assume that there will be grace tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, and it is the only day that we have. Today is the day of salvation. Soon the sun will go down on the grace of God. And that day, when Joshua came to town, with his people, led by the commander of the Lord's army. The sun went down on God's grace, and the darkness and the horrific consequences and the wrath of God would fall upon them. But we also learn how thoroughly deceived And deluded people can be who turn away from God's mercy. You see what happened to Jericho? They built the walls and they shut the gates. And what a window into their hearts. Grace rejected always leads to greater hardness of heart. That very truth had been played out in the life of Pharaoh 40 years earlier. You know the story. God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh to demand the release of the captives. And every time Moses goes, there's the offer of mercy to Pharaoh. All Pharaoh must do is respond to Moses and say, yes, I will acknowledge that your God is Lord and I repent and I will let the captives go and I will join you in worshiping the one true God. But every time Moses goes, Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. 
And you can read it yourself in the book of Exodus that every time he says no, there is a layer now, another layer growing around the heart of Pharaoh, and it gets harder and harder and colder and colder until there is no chance of repentance anymore. And that was now happening not to a man bearing the title Pharaoh. It was now happening to an entire city. The hearts of all the citizens of Jericho, save Rahab and her family, are cold and calloused. Mercy has been offered over and over again. Grace upon grace, long-suffering upon mercy. And they will not. They will not believe. And now there's no possibility left for their repentance. A terrible, terrible scene. The wages of sin is death. Now they're left, these poor citizens of Jericho are left to believe the self-manufactured lie that they can insulate themselves from God's presence, that they can build some walls, that they can keep God out, that they can keep God off their case, that they can keep the Lord away by building these walls. And before we make fun of them, before we ridicule them, before we call them ancient, uncultured, uneducated people, let's think about the walls that we build. The walls we build. The wall of our own goodness. That illusion we create, we erect that we can keep God's judging eyes off of us because we're so good. It is a self-perpetuated lie, but when we believe that we have no sins, that we don't have any real sins to confess, and, and, and recently, recently, one presidential candidate has made that statement, and again, before we ridicule him, let's recognize that he is being the spokesman for the majority Sin, forgiveness, me? I don't need to ask for forgiveness because I haven't really committed any sins. And how many, how many in today's world would sound the amen to that? That we see ourselves as fundamentally good. We are good down in the heart. We often say, oh, if you only knew my heart. If you just knew my heart, down deep inside, I am a good person. And we erect these high, thick walls of personal holiness to keep God's eyes off of us. But there is none righteous, not even one. And that wall will fall. The wall of my own goodness will surely collapse. How about the wall of intellectualism? The illusion, the delusion that we are smarter than God, that we know more than He knows, that He must answer to us, that He can only exist if we acknowledge Him. He only exists if we give Him permission, and He only can exist under our conditions and when He conforms to our image of Him. Think about the ways this happens. 
the scientist sitting in a lab or a classroom who says, I know the secret to the universe and I don't need God to explain it. A wall of intellectual and scientific self-righteousness. Or think about the politician or the academician or the civil authority who says, God has to stay in his place. He cannot come into my domain. He cannot be my judge. He must be confined to the category of myth and helpful lies, but he cannot come into my domain. And if I need him, I'll call for him. This one is a particular danger in our beloved city, the wall of intellectualism with our history of accomplishments, with our great reputation for learning. We, we have put a man on the moon. We are going to send a man or men to Mars and beyond. We have conquered space here. We have harnessed the power of the atom here. We have mastered the laws of the universe. We in this city have discovered the secret to life. We've solved the problems of the world. We're defending freedom against all aggressors. Look at what we've done. And yet we forget that this very hour, as the word says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. We forget the word of the Lord that says the wisdom of this world is folly to God. And that wall of intellectual self-righteousness will fall. It will not insulate us from Almighty God. And there's another wall, the wall of arrogance and pride. This is the wall that makes the claim, I can live as I choose. No one will tell me what to do. I'm fine by myself. I can build my own kingdom. I can control my own fate. I can define good as I choose to define it. I am accountable to no one. It's my body. It's my mind. I can do as I please. I am in full control. But like all those other walls... Those walls of Jericho will come a-tumbling down. And what a mighty crash there will be. We can explain the building of those walls to keep out God this way. The Word says, The wicked and the unbelieving have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Satan, the god of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They believe irrational things. They believe things that lead to futility, like you could build a wall to keep out the God who made heaven and earth. No, it isn't rational, but sin is not rational. Rebellion against the Lord is not rational. And when men and women reject God's grace, they build walls like that. They build walls, and they become fools. Their hearts are darkened, 
They are morally blind. They are irrational, deluded, deceived. Because the Lord will have the final word, come what may. But there's something else we need to see at verse 1. What greets us here is, is not only a commentary on those walls and the status of the hearts of the citizens of Jericho and really a commentary on the hearts of humans in all ages. We also see the apparent impossibility of the mission that awaits Joshua. He's on the outside. He he looks across and he sees the high walls, those seemingly impenetrable walls, walls that are echoing out indestructibility, indestructibility. Not only is there a massive wall on the outside and another inner wall, inside those walls is an army. Notice in verse 2, there are mighty men of valor there. Not only mighty men of valor, but these Canaanites had iron chariots. No one else had them. Not only infantry, highly trained, valiant soldiers who, who would stop at nothing until they carried out the wishes of their commander. They had the iron chariots, the equivalent of the modern-day tank. Walls, an army, and chariots. And what is Israel? What are these Israelites? They're a company of pilgrims. They are the children of former slaves. They've been walking around in the desert for 40 years. And when the Lord says, go and take Jericho, on the surface, on the surface, it looks like a suicide mission. Look at the battle plan in verses 3 through 5. What's the plan? How are they going to take the city? And imagine if you're sitting there and you receive these orders from Joshua. What I want you to do is walk around in a bunch of circles and make a lot of noise. Against a chariot? Against walls? Against mighty men of valor? I can imagine that word began to circulate. Had I been there, I would have been thinking this. Word begins to circulate. This is, this is a strange plan, and if it's not strange, it is plain silly. A silly plan. But yet it's God's plan. And God says the walls will come down, and they will come down in a way that no man could possibly anticipate. Indeed, what is impossible will be made possible. A miracle will occur again. Omnipotence will be unleashed. All for the glory of God. Now think about how that addresses you and me today. The way our Lord has commanded us to live as His disciples is often reckoned as silliness and weakness by the world. Sometimes we might think it's silly and weak. But consider what the Word of God says to us who are like Joshua's people, pilgrims and yet soldiers. What has the Lord's Word said to us about the way we live that seems so contradictory to wisdom, so contradictory to power, so counterintuitive at every level? The Lord has told us to live by dying, that we find our lives by losing them.
The Lord has told us that we finish first by being last, by becoming a bond servant of Christ. So in a world destined to make celebrities out of ourselves, destined to be served, destined to be first, the message of Jesus is be last, be a servant. Surely unwise, surely weak. And the Lord has told us that we gain eternity, we gain every blessing from heaven by giving up all we have. We we give up what we don't own to gain that which we could never lose. The message of the Lord to his disciples is to love when everyone else hates. It is to serve when everyone else is waiting to be served. It is to forgive when everyone else is maintaining grudges and extracting vengeance. And the message we bring is a message of life about a Savior who dies. He dies on a cross. He dies like a criminal. He dies with criminals. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. And hell rejoices for three days. And then he rises again from the dead. The one who died, the one entombed, holds the keys of death and hell. He lives by dying, and so do his people. Our task is the same. It looks silly. It looks weak. But it's God's plan. It is God's plan. And he will get the victory. And then notice verse 2. And this is about as far as we will go in our journey to Jericho this morning. But look at verse 2. And we immediately come to a major point of dramatic contrast. The residents of Jericho are trusting their walls because you've got to believe something. And they believe in their walls. What does Israel believe? What does Joshua believe? Verse 2, there's the word of the Lord right on time. See, the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. And its king and its mighty men of valor. Israel will march forward because the Lord has said go. And not only that, the Lord has given them a promise upon which to stand. The Jericho inhabitants, the Jericho citizenry, they trust in their walls. They're standing on their walls. But Israel is standing on the word of the Lord. And notice that every Israelite will participate. Every Israelite will believe. Every Israelite will obey. Every Israelite will fight. And they will claim the promise the Lord has already delivered to them. The outcome is certain. The victory has been won. The walls aren't down yet. But they're as good as down. There will be combat. But the enemy of God's people is as good as gone. This is why the Lord says, I have given, not I shall give, 
but I have given Jericho into your hand. A mighty miracle will occur. The power of the Lord will be unleashed. The power of the Lord's word will be unleashed. And here is one of those places, one of the early places in the Bible where we see what true faith really is. What is real faith? True faith is anchored to the promises of God. True faith doesn't build its own foundation. It doesn't build its own walls. True faith listens for the word of the Lord. True faith has an object. And that object is not suspended in air. That object is not based on wishes or dreams or what we manufacture. That object is the word of the Lord. I have given Jericho into your hand. And the response then is to act as if it's true to act. In this case, they will prove their faith by marching. They will march as a little army of pilgrims toward an impenetrable fortress, even though their destruction Israel's destruction seems to be a foregone conclusion. They will not believe what their eyes tell them. They will not receive the data from their senses and interpret it as necessarily true. They will hear the word of the Lord. And he has said, those walls will fall. Now march, believe me, trust me. I'm going to fight for you. And they must do that. The plan is odd, but it's the Lord's plan. You'll march and you'll march and you'll march and on the last day of the week you will march seven times and the people will hear the trumpet and then they will shout and then every one of you, every one of you will go straight up before you. All will participate. All will march. All will shout. All will go up. Every one of them, every individual Israelite will stand upon the word of God, but they will stand together as one nation, one nation made up of people who are believing the promise, who have heard, who now obey, who are the people of God. Each one, each man, each child, each woman exercising their faith in Yahweh, believing that what he says is true. Now, how do I know, how do I know all of this is going on? How do I know this is the point? Listen to the author of Hebrews. Many, many centuries after the fall of the walls of Jericho, the author of the New Testament epistle to the Hebrews reaches back to that event, and he says this, by faith, the walls of Jericho came down. By faith. Had Israel not believed, had they not marched, had they not shouted, had they not prepared to fight, those walls would still be there to this hour. But they came down by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. The commander of the Lord's army said, march and shout, and Jericho would fall. And that's all they needed. Faith stands on the word of the Lord. There is no other foundation. Now you hold your place right there because we will return next Lord's Day and go further 
into this amazing story. But just for a moment, a very, very fleeting connection needs to be made. A quick thought, a quick connection. We are like Old Testament Israel. They were the church in her infancy. Like them, we've been saved by grace through faith. Also to worship, also to believe, to obey, and to fight. And like them, our faith in Christ is the secret to God's glorification. Our faith in Christ is the way that God's plans will be accomplished. And everything depends upon our response to His Word. Humanly speaking, we must believe His Word. We must claim His promises. We must obey His Word. We must conform our lives to His Word. We must trust in no other foundation than His Word. We cannot build our own walls. We cannot trust in those things our hands have made. We must believe the word of the Lord, and we must act accordingly. And when we follow our Savior toward Jericho, victory will come. Enemies will flee in fear, and the walls will fall one day. Praise his name.